I'd first like to tell you why the church bells are ringing specifically loud and long today. It's not because it's Sunday. Um, it's because a man from the village, Niederaltaich is also the name of the village around the monastery, has finished his studies of theology and today he will hold his first mass in this church right now and the whole village will be there because they're very proud of that and they hope fervent, fervently that he will remain a priest because he ha they have had um, occasions uh, too that we know of where that didn't happen and um, where they, uh, they were holding their first mass and then very soon after they uh, uh, disrobed in our language <laughs> so the village is uh, uh, probably everyone who is not in bed the sick is, uh, is in the church and uh, praying that this man will remain a priest <laughs> and the church is beautifully decorated with uh, flowers from uh, the local uh, garden center that's a gift from the garden center to the church for this occasion and they are having a, it's going to be a whole day celebration after the mass so if you hear lots of bells send a lot of loving kindness to this unknown new priest I don't know him either uh, that he may be able to live this life to the end and uh, in their um, expression have the God experience which is the reason for leading a spiritual life and so we all wish them well and wish him very well it's an, in a small village like this a very big occasion and when you hear the bells I will just um, repeat that I said it yesterday but since I do say quite a few things, some of them, of course, get lost in the shuffle. Don't think of it as a disturbance, because then it is one. Whichever way one thinks of things, that's the way they are for oneself. If you allow the sound to enter into you, and just let it go through the body. It can actually be a beginning of a first meditative absorption. Of course, that needs a bit of practice. But if you think of it as a disturbance and think, I wish they would stop, and I hope it will be finished soon, then you have nothing but dukkha. And that's a very good lesson too in Dukkha. The way we have Dukkha is because we don't like things the way they are. We want them different. And hence we get Dukkha. So here we have church bells to deal with. A very interesting subject, I think, to deal with. At least we can't really blame anybody. So that's a very helpful situation because church bells are sort of 
holy things, so we can't blame anybody for them. It's very good. We're, we're going to do the same a con- contemplation that we did yesterday. And we're going to do it on our own. But I will say a few words about it before we start in order to help with that contemplation. I believe that it will be more helpful and effective if you do it on your own now. Now, if you don't remember the words, it was to be free from enmity, from hurtfulness, from troubles of mind and body, and to be able to protect one's own happiness. And then the whole, all of those four, also for all beings. The main focus of attention goes on that which concerns oneself. What we haven't accomplished in within ourselves, we can't possibly extend to others. If we like to give some money to a beggar, and we haven't got any, we haven't made any money, well, we can't give it, can we? It's very simple. It's the same with being free from enmity and hurtfulness. If we haven't done it, we can't give it to anybody. So the main focus on our, on our own purification. When we talk about the word enmity, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're becoming an enemy. These are translations from Pali. And there are two things which are being considered in these translations. One is that when you recite it, and these are recitations, that there is a certain rhythm. So words are chosen for their rhythm. And the other is that the translators try to be as literal without being totally off the mark. So the words are not always those that we would use in everyday language. Very few people would speak about enmity. But we do know what it means. And it entails all negative thinking for whatever reason. Whether we think negatively about politics or whether we think negatively about a people who do things we don't approve of. When we think about people who are possibly hurting the environment and become negative about that. These are all the beginnings of being an enemy. We can discriminate between right and wrong, but there is absolutely no justification for being negative, for being an enemy of anything. Because being an enemy of something means that there is no peacefulness within. It's the inner war. And this is how the outer wars come about. History, as long as it is known for mankind, has consisted of wars. 
always the one who started them, felt totally justified. And then the one who fought it was justified in stopping it. Not so long ago, it's only 50 years ago, and the same situation was here. And it's been going on for thousands of years. But the war doesn't start on the battlefield. The war starts in our heart. And that's what this contemplation is all about. Total peacefulness is something very difficult to achieve. Ramana Maharshi, who was an enlightened sage in southern India, he died about uh, 40, 40 years ago, he said, happiness and peacefulness are not our birthright. Those who have it have worked hard to achieve it. And that is quite true. And also, it was very interesting in his teaching that he did not uh, distinguish between the different religions and spiritual paths. He said, you can do that in your own, wherever, whatever you like. Just do it. So, here we have this particular contemplation. And we could think of it as a way to make peace. So when we look at our, the first one, not to have enmity and look inside of ourselves, we ought to be totally honest about ourselves to ourselves. We don't need to tell anybody. In fact, practically nobody's interested in what's going on within us. They're all interested in what's going on in themselves, rightly so. So we can keep it to ourselves, but we need to know it. What goes on within? Do I sometimes dislike the people around me? Do I dislike the people a little further away? Do I feel justified in that dislike? Do I feel justified in my anger? What, how do I deal with all that? With the hurtfulness, have I hurt anybody, any living being? Have I hurt them with anything I have said, thought, or done? Now, the said and done are the two which are, of course, far more active and uh, noticeable. Most people do not know exactly what somebody else is thinking, but they can guess. And our guesses are very often not very far off the mark. Sometimes they are. They're so much colored by our own way of thinking that we're off the mark. But the said and done, that's easy. What do people do and what do we do? And what do we say? Have we ever hurt anybody? Are we aware of the fact that having done so, that we ourselves were unhappy about it? Are we letting go of the idea that it's justified? Are we realizing that it's useless to blame the trigger? Now, this is a very, very important aspect of spirituality, no matter what name you like to give spirituality. 
don't blame the trigger. Have we done that? Everybody has. There's no doubt about it. Do we see it? Can we stop it? Can we see what's going on within? How often does it happen that somebody is not totally at ease with the relationship that we have with them? Are we thinking it's the other person's fault? Our environment is our mirror. And it only mirrors who and what we are. It's very interesting. If you look at it as a mirror, you know better what's going on within. Troubles of mind and body. How do I usually deal with my dukkha? I think everybody knows the word dukkha. D-U-K-K-H-A, everything that's unsatisfactory. The whole lot. How do I deal with it? Do I distract myself? Do I blame? Do I try to flee? Do I uh, think of the future instead of being in the present? What do I do with my dukkha? Or do I look for pleasant sense contacts? How do I usually handle it? And has it abolished dukkha? That's the main question. The ways I have dealt with it has that abolished dukkha. And the last one, to protect one's own happiness, how dependent am I on outside things for my happiness? And how can I possibly protect that if I'm dependent on other people, situations, that what is a reaction, how can I protect that? Have I got any influence on that? Or can I actually recognize the fact that the only way I can protect my own happiness is if I am able to make it grow and establish it within, independent of outer conditions. And then the next question is, how do I do that? But these questions need to be asked by each person for him or herself. Because only what we can answer for ourselves makes a real impact. It's that old story of biting into the mango and then we know what it tastes like. As long as we depend on somebody to tell us what it tastes like, we're bound to make mistakes. How much of that can we see within? We can't see it all immediately. It's impossible. But we can certainly make a start. And honesty to ourselves, about ourselves, is one of the most important truth searchings that we can do. We search for truth. We find it within. 
We've got it all in there. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom-long body and mind. It's all in there. We can find it. But it does take a fair bit of personal honesty. It takes a fair bit of inquiry. And it takes an understanding of the connections that we make, which are very often not the proper ones. We make connections between things and uh, happenings which are not correct. And we can see that when we are very quiet and looking within. Naturally, the other thing that belongs with it is that we want to know. If we don't want to know, it's perfectly easy to just go past it and say, enmity, I haven't got. Hurtfulness, no. Troubles of mind and body, no, only if I sit in this silly position. (laughs) 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 And happiness, what do I need to protect it? I've got it. So, also possible. Everything can be done. The mind is a magician. It can pull a rabbit out of any hat. And usually does. So we're going to sort of get behind the stage and look and see what this magician is doing. Because when we're behind stage and we see what this magician is doing, we can see that the rabbit was in the hat all the time. (laughs) That's why he's pulling it out. All right. Enmity, hurtfulness, troubles of mind and body, protecting one's own happiness. If one of those four is more important to you, use that one. Otherwise, use two, three, or four. It's entirely up to each person where they feel most attracted to. I spoke about the four Brahma Viharas, the four supreme emotions yesterday, but I've only explained one of them, the first one, impersonal love or unconditional love, in Pali, metta, M-E-T-T-A, a word which we use a lot, trying not to just stay with the word, but get to the feeling. There are three more. They are, again, like themes that contain all of these positive emotions. So we can see that there are other things also included. For instance, in this uh, unconditional love, there would be gratitude included. There would be trust included. And anything where the heart opens up and tries to give itself to someone else. Now that someone else may be a person near or it may be people in general. It could be nature. But our 
most common difficulties are with people. So this is where we need to practice. Gratitude, I've already mentioned, and I'll probably mention again, as a very helpful emotion when we start our meditation with it. And we can be grateful for many things. We can actually choose whichever ones we like. Trust, devotion, respect and reverence, all of them are included in unconditional love. So it is an overall description of the feelings of the expansion of the heart. The second one that the Buddha mentioned as one of the four is compassion. And that's an also an overall description of our feeling with and for others. Now, intellectually, we may be quite aware of the fact that there are people in this world suffering far more than what we are. Their lives may be far more difficult we may have read about it, heard about it, seen it on, on um, television, anything at all. But do we actually feel with them? And that feeling, a feeling of empathy, com, passion, com is with, and passion is feeling, with feeling, feeling with the other, needs a fair bit of preparation. It usually doesn't come by itself. The far enemy is cruelty. That's easy to see. But the near enemy is pity. And that's hard to see because it's similar. Just like affection is similar to love and therefore hard to understand that it is called a near enemy. Pity, being sorry for someone is separating oneself from that other person or persons and very often also feeling and this is very common I'm really sorry that that person is not right it's, it's really fortunate that I'm alright which makes an even stronger distinction between myself and others and certainly does not have any with feeling, any empathy. If it stays on that level, there may be feeling, but the feeling, the feeling will not be one that it has a purifying effect. And this is what the whole aspect of this, these four emotions is all about the purification of the emotions. In order to have this empathy and the with-feeling, we need some insight. And the first step is usually that we can become aware 
of our own dukkha. If we reject that notion that we have dukkha as an inherent quality within us, but believe that it's only due if somebody does something that we don't like, we can't develop compassion. Because the first step of compassion is with ourselves. It's difficult to be a human being. And it's even more difficult to be a good human being. It's difficult because of the fact that we have instinctive and impulsive desires. Desires which very often are not for our own benefit nor for the benefit of others. Which are so strong in many cases that they override our intellectual understanding. Not always, of course, but often enough. And when they do, we're usually facing a disaster. Now, if we can look at ourselves and see, quite apart from tragedy and disasters, quite exempt from those, if we can see within that complete peacefulness, utter peacefulness, not inactivity, but that inner peace, which is complete fulfillment and contentment, is lacking. Then we have a first step towards compassion with everyone else, because they are lacking the same thing. Now, if we see that, it will also, of course, help us to look for the peace and the fulfillment within ourselves rather than outside of ourselves. That we can't find it immediately will be another cause for compassion. Compassion with ourselves and with everyone else. It's one of the most useful things to remember and then to feel when there is any negativity arising towards a person the negativity arising because of their speech or their action, we know they're doing it, whatever it is, because they're having dukkha. That they're also hurting someone else, that's the second step. They are making the bad karma. Now this is a way to substitute the negative emotion with the positive. If we're angry at someone or we reject someone or we dislike or we don't want anything to do with them or whatever it may be and we realize immediately that while we find it difficult to love them now instead of being angry we can understand that their action and their speech is a result of their own dukkha, of their own suffering. It's much easier to substitute the negative with compassion. They are only 
speaking like that because they are not happy. A person who is really truly happy will not say or do anything that will be hurtful to him or herself or to others. But since there isn't anyone except enlightened beings who are constantly happy, joyful, peaceful, everyone falls into that trap. The trap being that because I don't feel good, I can let it out and everybody around me is also not going to feel good. And then we have shared sorrow. But we don't have shared sorrow. What we have is an unpleasant environment. And within that unpleasant environment, it may actually increase the unpleasantness. It may increase to the point where we can't stem the tide. If we do that ourselves, it's our own karma. We are making the karma. And as much karma as we make, that many results we're getting. And the results we get are immediate in happiness or unhappiness. And since everybody is looking for happiness, it begins to show that we're doing that search for happiness in the wrong way. Now, if we are displeased or unhappy about something, suppressing it is also not useful. Pretending that everything is fine. Now, that's not as common nowadays as it used to be, but it's still common enough. Pretending I'm all right. It's recognition. Because if we don't feel compassion for others, our relationships with people in general will not work out very well. Compassion is the ingredient which makes relationships work. It's like the oil in the machinery. One of its important aspects of compassion is the lack of self-centeredness. The more self-centered we are, the less compassionate we can be and the less our relationships will flourish. With relationships, I don't mean one-to-one. They're problematical enough. I've already mentioned about them. I mean relationships in general. We have relationships with so many people, with uh, teachers and students and patients and neighbors. We have relationships with acquaintances, with friends, with relations. There are relationships with uh, salespeople. Untold relationships. And 
if we have that feeling of being together with these people in the same difficulty that everyone has, we do not usually reject any of their strange behavior. We think it's strange. And they probably think we're strange. It doesn't matter. It's compassion that makes the bond. It is said that the Buddha meditated every morning and threw out his net of compassion, which is just symbolic, to find a person that would be able to understand and profit from his teaching. One person. And then he would walk as much as, which is uh, in the scriptures, much as 200 miles to meet that one person and teach that one person. Sometimes, of course, they were also nearer, but this is a one instance where they were very far. This net of compassion extends to our ability to be helpful. Now that we have already discussed the fact that we can only help as much as we have already helped ourselves. Obviously, knowledge can be helpful. We can share knowledge, skills, time, listening to others. We can share all that. But the Buddha said that the greatest gift that we can give anyone is the gift of the Dhamma. To show people their way to happiness. But we've first got to find it ourselves. Now that is in effect not a denial of social action. It's just putting it into context. Social action is fine. And social action is needed. There was an occasion when the Buddha was ready to give a discourse and one man was missing. He knew that this person was coming because he had earlier on said that he was, but he wasn't there. So he waited for that one person. And then this one person who was a farmer, which was most people in the Buddhist days were farmers, arrived totally out of breath and uh, apologized that he had been chasing one of his cows who had gone astray and uh, it finally found her and brought her in and uh, he was now ready to sit down and um, listen. The Buddha said, no, no. First, he should go and have lunch because he wouldn't listen very well if he was on an empty stomach. And so he sent him off and waited till the man came back from his lunch. So it is not a denial of our physical needs 
that the greatest gift is the gift of the Dhamma, the inner purification, but it is putting it onto a higher level. Social action is not unknown to us, and that too contains compassion. If it's done without compassion, it's not effective and doesn't have the kind of good karma behind it. But social action is always limited. While we do need, and every living being needs, the right environment to flourish in, which has to be, very much of it has to be on the physical level, and in many instances, that's all that can be done to raise the physical level of people so that they do not suffer from physical deprivation. It is not the final solution to happiness and peace. And we, living in a wealthy society where everything is available. All we have to do is go to work (coughs) and we can buy practically anything just depending how much work we want to do. We know that. That the physical satisfaction does not bring with it the inner peace and joy that every human being wants and which the Buddha said was the aim that we should look for so compassion has different levels and we can give what we've got if we have skills and knowledge if we have can give time if we have a feeling that we'd like to help we help on the level that we can. Always remembering that unless we have found a way to that totality of peace, we can't transmit it either. But compassion is something that we need to practice. So we should practice it on every level. And we should practice it on every level, not only with human beings. We have the possibility to practice it, for instance, with animals. Because they're the only other beings that every human being is aware of. There are many other beings, but most human beings are not aware of them animals we are aware of so they are part of our environment they are part of our surrounding and they live with us and often they live off us like mosquitoes and they also want to be alive so there's an interesting and uh, not unimportant lesson in being bitten by a mosquito. 
then it's worthwhile looking at. They're not just a pest. They are a living being. If we have thought about compassion and have tried to practice it, that sort of thing comes very natural. It's an immediate reaction. If we start out, it doesn't. We have to remember. There's a lot of things we need to remember which are not profitable in the marketplace. The marketplace is a place where we can practice. But we also need to remember that it isn't all there is. The marketplace is our everyday kind of consciousness. And it is usually connected with profit and loss. On the spiritual level, profit and loss are on a totally different basis. They are immaterial, not material. So we need to actually change a bit of our approach because helping others, for instance, without any remuneration in the marketplace, that's not considered a profitable thing to do. On the spiritual level, it's considered an excellent learning situation. And this is what we also need to do about Dukkha. Anything that arises that isn't exactly the way we want it, and if we've ever looked, that happens every second minute, even if it's only small things, is not to be rejected, but it's a learning situation. And there, we move away totally from the marketplace, from the mentality that wants to get. Here we have the mentality that wants to grow. This is a growth situation, and we can call it whatever you like, but it's an inner growth. It's a growth towards a totally different goal. In the marketplace, the growth is mostly getting bigger, more important, more appreciated, very often also less work. It's very much so that the person who is trying to grow in the marketplace is finding a sure footing for the ego-based wishes. That's what marketplace is about. Can't be changed. That's it. And it's all right for the marketplace. But if we have already tried it, if we're old enough to have tried the marketplace, we know 
it doesn't make us completely happy. It's got its features. And as I said, in a wealthy society such as this, the features are manifold, and we can often get sidetracked because there are so many features which could produce pleasant feeling. But if we know that that isn't it, that's not the answer to a fulfilled human life, then we also know that not to be within the marketplace with one's thoughts and emotions, that doesn't mean we can't go to work, we've got to go to work, but not to be within the marketplace with thought and emotion, that shows us a totally different goal. And it shows us a transcendence which is possible. Having compassion with others may not produce a return of compassion from the other person. It's a matter of having practiced it. Maybe the other person hasn't practiced compassion at all. So they can't feel it. They don't even know that they have it. We all have it. But that's not what it's all about. It's about our inner growth. And the more compassion we have, the more we can give. And the more we give, the more we've got. And this is a very interesting aspect of the spiritual inner life. The more of our love and compassion we give away, the more there is within us. And it's the same level. Most people are afraid to try it out. They're afraid to lose something. But if you look at love, for instance, it's obvious. It's logical. There's no way one can argue about it. The more love we give away, the more we've got. It works on every level. And there we are again on a totally different tangent than in the marketplace. Because the everyday mentality that we all know and have is everywhere, we are very much influenced by it. The very few people in the world that talk or act on a different uh, level than on the everyday kind of marketplace level. It's so insidious that we don't even know it, that we're influenced by it. We need to be independent thinkers. And as we practice meditation, it is easier to become an independent thinker. Some people do it automatically. Other people need a lot of effort to start seeing that the way humanity acts cannot produce peace and joy. There are moments, of course, we've all have had them and I hope we all have them again as much as possible. But it's not something which will stay with us. 
So one of the things that help us to grow within compassion with ourselves, compassion with others. Having seen our own difficulties, our own dukkha, we know for a fact that everybody's got it, whether they admit it or not. It makes no difference. Whether they know about it or not, it makes no difference. Now, knowing that one has dukkha is not a cause for concern or for sadness. It's a cause for joy. Because then, anything that happens that isn't exactly the way we want it is not considered to be either a tragedy or something that has been caused by neglect or has been caused by someone else. It's just part of life, the way it is. And it's everywhere. And so we don't have to reject it. We don't have to become miserable about it or even depressed about it, which also happens a lot. But we can look at it and say that we are facing another learning situation and enjoy the fact that this learning situation has arisen. So with that, our inner buoyancy and the ease of facing all the vicissitudes of life is so much more that we can actually tread the spiritual path. <coughs> we have all met people who are or whose moods are usually depressed or negative. We've all met people whose mood is generally joyous and happy. The ones whose mood is generally depressed or unhappy has of course a much more difficult pathway, but they have far greater incentive to practice. They want to get out of that misery. They don't know exactly where the misery lies until they find the spiritual path. So they have a real incentive to practice. They're usually a little harder to get along with, putting it mildly. <laughs> and they are also having a hard time getting along with themselves. But that just is the reason why they want to practice. Now the other ones that are usually joyous and uh, quite happy. Their incentive to practice is lacking. But what they are faced with is that they are falling from one hope for the future into the next and from one plan for the future into the next until one day they wake up and see that they've been doing the same thing for decades and it hasn't actually brought about a result. So while they are much easier to live with, in fact they are very often a pleasure to live with, and they are much easier for them to live with themselves, 
it's much harder for them to practice. So you can see that both have advantages and disadvantages. doesn't matter which one we are. There's a very famous teacher in Northeast Thailand, Tanachan Mahabur, who's said to be Arahant, fully enlightened, and uh, has a forest monastery up there. And uh, at one stage, he had a lot of Western uh, monks come there, students who became monks there. And uh, he used to say that he actually would prefer if all those monks that he has there were all hate characters because at least they practice. And he, being enlightened, didn't matter to him what they did. So, of course, we, not being enlightened to us, it does matter. And uh, we make very great discriminations. But in order to practice compassion, we can always remember that both of them, the joyous one and the depressed one, they both need compassion. One because he's unhappy and the other one because he doesn't practice. (laughs) I prefer if we look at things very much in a simple, straightforward way. One of our great difficulties in the human mind is that we have the ability to have convolutions in it, turning around in circles. And when we do, we can't find the center of it. We can always go back to the center if we go back to our own center. Our own center will tell us, how do I feel? How am I reacting? The third one of the supreme emotions in Pali Mudita, joy with others, is an interesting one because it is so rarely mentioned in our culture and society. Who talks about having joy with others? I never heard of it until I heard of the Buddha's teaching. And yet, it is such a simple and effective way to have joy in the heart. Now, usually people have occasional joy. But if we have joy with other people's achievements, with other people's happiness, we can multiply our own joy tremendously. And by multiplying our own joy, we are multiplying the joy that exists in the world. This is one of the things that we also need to remember. I have already mentioned it, but I like to mention it again because I consider it extremely important that each one of us is a participant. We are not observers. When we are intellectually engaged, and all of us have been and probably still are because this is a feature of Western society. We get paid for our intellectual achievements. We think we are observers of that what goes on in the world. We're not. We're taking part in it. We can't help it. We are interacting with everything there is 
which eventually becomes an experience through the meditative mindfulness and the meditative concentration that we are actually interacting. And as we find that we are interacting, it is easier for us to take responsibility for our own emotions and take responsibility for our output. We have that responsibility towards everyone else. We are part of the environment. Now we are mostly, I guess everyone these days, is concerned with the pollution of the environment. We separate our plastic from our tins and our glasses and we hope that everything is going to work out one of these days. It's a hope against hope. But that is the least of our problems. The pollution of our environment takes place through the pollution of our emotions and thoughts. Because that is our environment. We don't, we can't hide them. They are totally obvious and they are actually uh, tangible. Thoughts and emotions are tangible. They are not hidden. So there we have to take at least as much responsibility as we take with our rubbish that we separate and set out in different rubbish cans so that some of it can be recycled. If we take responsibility for that, our own emotions and thoughts are much more important. They pollute or purify the environment. And as we realize that, we also realize why the Buddha said that joy with others is one of the four supreme emotions. Because first of all, it reduces our egocentricity that we're only joyful about the things that happen to ourselves. If we get something or achieve something, we are joyful. For instance, we are very joyful if one of our children should have an achievement. How joyful are we when next door's children have an achievement? It's very easy to see the difference. Very simple. This is the practice path. Next door's children are just as much my children as the ones that are living in my house. That's the path of practice. Sounds extremely simple, doesn't it? Hard work has to be done. It's a simplification in terms, but it's not a simplification in actual emotional purification. And this is an important factor of the Buddhist teaching, that the terminology and the terms are so simple that one can get the idea 
Well, this is obvious. I know all that. That's, that's nothing new. No, it isn't. It isn't anything new. It's as old as mankind. But so is love thy neighbor as thyself. It's nothing new, is it? The only thing that would be new about it is that somebody can actually do it. And that's the same with the Buddha's teaching. The simplification of terminology can give one the wrong idea that there is something which is so obvious and so natural that one doesn't need to say it. If that was so, it would be wonderful if one didn't need to say it. The Buddha spent 45 years of his life saying it every single day. There were people in those days living quite near to the Buddha I didn't hear it. In fact, that same uh, enlightened monk I was talking about, Tanachan Mahabua, in the northeast of Thailand, I've been to that monastery where he lives and I've spent three months there, told one evening that his brother, who lives in the next village, which was 10 kilometers away, has been convicted of murder and was just being taken to prison. His own brother. So one can be so near and can understand but not do it. And this is a great uh, danger because we are intelligent. Our minds have been trained which is a very common feature in our society, a trained mind. It's um, so um, widespread that we don't even consider it anything special. But we need a trained heart. And that is not available other than through our own work. So joy with others is something that we can practice every time that somebody tells us about something nice or good that happened to them. Or, also, if they don't tell us about it, if we see or hear that something good is happening, we can actually show that person our appreciation. Most people would like to be appreciated. No, not most. Everybody. Everybody wants to be appreciated. The easiest way to feel appreciation is to give it to others. Just as it is the easiest way to feel love is to love others. And appreciating others is part of joy with others, appreciating their excellence, their effort, anything they do, that is loving and joyful with others. That's not flattery. Flattery is lying. Buddha is very much against flattery. Honesty. Honesty 
but on a positive and joyous level. So when we see that there's something happening which the other person enjoys and is really full of that enjoyment and we ourselves think that this is nothing that's really worthwhile, we can still show them joy unless of course it's breaking the precepts. That is of course exempt. The more we have joy with others, the more joy there will be in the world. But not only that, joy is a precondition for meditation. And I like to emphasize that right now very much. If one sits down on the pillow with a long face and think, oh no, not another meditation session. <laughs> and uh, those church bells, who can meditate? And uh, what did I ever let myself in for? And uh, whatever, you know, all those thoughts, you know. We know them all. Nothing will happen. It will just stay that way. The mind will keep on saying, oh God, another meditation session, no church bell. I mean, it will just stay that way. What, why should it change? Just because one has sat down doesn't change anything. It's the mind that needs a change. So, anything that we can recognize as being joyful, maybe we can have today joy with that person that's becoming an, a priest, holding his first mass. It's an enormous occasion. Maybe we can have joy with them. Or we can have joy with the villagers that they have a man from their own village who will possibly officiate in this church. I don't know, he may. And they are very joyful. They have decorated everything with flowers because they're happy about this. Or we can think of someone whom we know who's just had a joyful occasion, have graduated or have got engaged or have uh, got some money or whatever it is. And or we can think of the joy that we're having because we are practicing. We aren't staying in the old uh, mentality that is the everyday kind of mentality, but we are actually trying to rise above it. It's a great reason for joy. In the um, transcendental depend origination, which is one of the uh, important discourses of the Buddha, Joy, because of having gained some confidence in the teaching, is a precondition for meditation. The first precondition is recognizing one's own dukkha. I may talk about that at some greater length also about dukkha, but we have already heard about it now. And the second one is Hearing the Dhamma and gaining some confidence that there is actually a way which transcends and then joy arises. And only then is meditation mentioned. So as you sit down to meditation, I have already said, do loving kindness for yourself. But do everything possible to feel 
happy and joyous about the opportunity you have. Feel happy and joyous about anyone whom you know who has just had some joyful occasion. Feel happy and joyous about all the good things in your life, whatever it is. Find that in your heart, in one's own heart, there is total purity. The impurity are thoughts and reactions. We have total purity within, and total purity contains joy. So that our meditation is greatly supported by that feeling of lovingness, compassion for ourselves with the difficulties we have. We can immediately extend that compassion to the one who's sitting next to us. I'm sure that person has exactly the same difficulties, maybe the one behind and in front. And then having joy with even with if we have seen someone who seems to have a very quiet and uh, very uh, peaceful meditation, have joy with that person. Often we think, oh, he or she can do it. I'll never sit like that. Well, that doesn't work. If you have joy with that person, the whole inner being changes into one which is opening up and having flexibility, malleability, ease of being. And that's what it's all about, ease of being. Then we can meditate. Because when we have that ease, we don't have to think about things about ourselves or others. We can just let go and fall into what is happening at the moment. Ease, you can call it being relaxed, but that's not quite strong enough. The ease of being contains everything that we are without wanting anything. And that gives rise to meditation. Now we have discussed three of the four supreme emotions. We haven't heard about equanimity yet. If we find time during this course, I may broach that subject. It is called the most supreme of all supreme emotions. And it is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it contains the other three. Right now, I wish you a very pleasant meal. We'll put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
will think of all the things in our lives that we can be grateful for and fill our hearts with gratitude. Gratitude for the good food we have, the roof over our heads, the families that we belong to, the beautiful countryside we find ourselves in. All the things that we can think of, the spiritual practice which is possible for us, our friends, anything that we remember that is good in our lives will have deep and sincere gratitude for that we won't take it for granted and we fill our hearts with gratitude and surround ourselves with it and we feel a sense of well-being we will extend our gratitude to the person sitting nearest us in this room gratitude for his or her presence because that supports our own practice and also gratitude that that person is on the same path that we are will think of our parents whether they're still alive or not and we extend deep gratitude to them for all the help they have given us especially when we were too small to help ourselves for the love that they have given us for anything we remember that has supported us We fill them from head to toe with our gratitude. will think of 
those people who are nearest and dearest to us with whom we might live together and we are sincerely grateful to them for their presence for their support for their interest in us we don't take them for granted we're grateful that they're with us and we want to show it to them and we let our gratitude reach out to their hearts We'll think of our friends, relatives, acquaintances, whoever comes to mind, who's part of our lives, and we're grateful for their presence. We're grateful to them that they often listen to us, are concerned about our well-being, and we let them feel this gratitude which is an extension of our heart full of love to them think of those people who are part of our everyday life neighbors colleagues at work patients, students teachers salespeople, postmen whoever comes to our minds and we can be grateful to them that they are caring and concerned that their lives connect with ours that we have a feeling of togetherness with them our gratitude in our heart extends to their hearts
And now we think of a difficult person in our lives. <clears throat> and we're grateful to that person for the learning experience. We're learning to love that which is difficult. Our gratitude goes out to that difficult person. Filling him or her. with the warmth of our heart. We'll think of the farmers who work on the land to supply our food. No matter where our food comes from, it's still dependent upon the work of the farmer. Let's be utterly grateful to them. We think of the people who have built our houses, repairing our streets, manning our telephone systems, sending off our mail, selling us the products that we need, and we're grateful to each and every one of them. We all need each other. think of any doctor or nurse that have helped us get over a sickness or have helped a loved one get over a sickness and we're grateful to them for their care and concern and the knowledge that they applied. And we'll think of all the teachers that we've ever had going back as far as we can all having helped us. And we extend sincere gratitude to each one of them for having been a building block on our way.
We let our minds go outside into nature and are grateful for the beautiful trees that help us to breathe, the grass in which we can walk, the beautiful flowers, bushes, the valleys and mountains surrounding us. grateful that we can be within all that natural beauty and we look at the night sky in our mind and see the beauty of the stars and the moon and are grateful that this is part of our experience put attention back on ourselves and realize that the more gratitude we give out and extend the more we feel in our heart we feel filled with it which is loving and caring and accepting giving us a sense confidence, ease, and security. May people everywhere have gratitude in their hearts.